John's Gospel, chapter 3, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Coming to chapter 3 of uh, John, we come to one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. And uh, no matter how familiar we may be with it or how familiar we think the body of Christ is with it, uh, it needs to be taught and read and learned uh, as much as uh, ever when it was recorded and placed in, in the Scriptures. We have in this chapter uh, the, uh, the dealing with a subject that is the most important in life for each and every human being, for each of us, and that is uh, how to be born again. And the necessity of being born again, what it is, uh, how it happens in our life, the reasons that people uh, reject being born again, and, the, and then the terrible consequences that are a result of that. All of that here uh, in this chapter. It begins with, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. It's a mouthful that is there in a verse and a half. This man by, Nick, by the name of Nicodemus, God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to know quite a bit about him. So apparently it's very important to God and it's, uh, as a result, important to uh, us. We're told that he was a Pharisee. And uh, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, tells us that there were only 7,000 Pharisees in the land uh, of Israel. And he was one of this elite group uh, of the 7,000. And uh, so uh, very much uh, respected for his position. The Pharisees were, came into existence during the period of the Maccabees, which was between uh, that 400-year period between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, we read about them in the Scriptures, and we read about Jesus' very strong denunciation of their hypocrisy uh, in the book of, of Matthew, but they weren't always like that. It was a very low time spiritually in the nation of Israel and a very lax view in terms of obeying God's Word. And there were a group of people that looked and said, we no longer want to continue in this way. We want to uh, uh, obey God's Word and His commandments with a sobriety and with a zeal. And that group became known as uh, the Pharisees. And they gave themselves not only to the obeying of the 613 commandments of the law of Moses, but even to uh, the interpretations of, of those commandments. So they're just full-on uh, uh, zealots and viewed as being having, in the best sense of a word, a great zeal for God. The, name, the word Pharisee, it means separatist. And so the idea is we're going to separate ourselves from the word, uh, world and we're going to separate ourselves unto God by obeying His word. Now, one of the challenges that people face when they have a zeal for God and obedience to uh, God's word is to then take their zeal beyond what is commanded in the Scriptures. And so uh, what the, the Pharisees ultimately did is they looked and they said, well, if God commands X, then 3X must be three times better uh, than the 1X that he gave. And so they would add all of these 
uh, demands of the commandments of God that God never intended. God doesn't want His commandments explained away, but He also doesn't want them made any more severe or, or harder or demanding than they already are. He simply doesn't want the help because His commandments are absolutely perfect in producing a Christian that looks like uh, Jesus Christ. And so here is Nicodemus. He is uh, very, very accomplished in the realm of religion. He has risen to the top, so to speak. But that's not the peak of, of his religious accomplishment. We're told uh, also that he was a ruler uh, of the Jews. And the only thing that that can refer to is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin uh, there in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of Jews made up of 71 uh, Jewish men. They were, by virtue of this, the most powerful uh, uh, Jewish religious leaders in all of the world, and he uh, is uh, among that group. So we're talking about a man who is drop-dead serious about God. He is drop-dead serious about religion. And yet he recognizes a lack in his life and the lack in the life of his fellow Pharisees, something that he sees in Jesus that he doesn't see anywhere else. And so he comes to Jesus by night to inquire and to talk with him. Now, some people have labeled this very cleverly, Nick at night. I kind of like that, actually. Um, but uh, uh, but the, the reason, sometimes people say, well, he came at night because he was afraid to come during the day. I, I, I don't... It might be, but I, I don't uh, land there. The Bible says that love hopes all things. And so I, I try not to look at what would be the worst way to interpret a passage toward another human being. I would hope somebody would do that with me. And so the same with, uh, with Nicodemus. I think that Nicodemus, clearly he is a very serious man. He's a circumspect man. And uh, he, he, he wears two mantles very seriously in his life. He is a Pharisee, and he is also a member of the Sanhedrin. So wherever he goes, he is not just Nicodemus, Joe Blow in, in Israel. He is everywhere he goes, he, re, he represents the Pharisees and he represents uh, the Sadducees. And so he has to be careful about how he... Uh, represents those groups and so he doesn't want to create confusion in anybody's minds he has these questions that he has of Jesus and so he comes circumspectly at night I also am very much inclined to believe that he came at night simply because this was his only chance at getting an extended uninterrupted uh, audience with Jesus Jesus was very busy during the day about what he was about. Nicodemus was very busy during the day what he was about. And so that what Nicodemus wants to talk with Jesus about isn't something that you want to begin when someone can only give you three minutes before then they're pulled off into something else. And so he comes at night where hopefully he can gain uh, a longer uh, audience uh, with 
with Jesus. And so he, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now that's a mouthful as well. For a Pharisee to call Jesus a teacher or a rabbi when he has attended none of their seminaries, none of their religious schools, to call him one that has come from God and acknowledge him as having the favor of God on his life by virtue of the miracles, that is quite a thing for the Pharise- a Pharisee to say related to uh, Jesus. So he recognizes him as a great teacher. He recognizes him as a great miracle worker. Uh, but that is not enough. Jesus is far more than that, and Jesus is going to make that uh, clear to him. It is good to notice that when he speaks to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, plural. He, he, he didn't say, I know, and all of the other Pharisees are completely in the dark concerning you. Obviously, there were conversations that were occurring among the Pharisees. Jesus was a, a great topic of conversation among the Pharisees in endeavoring to figure out who and what uh, he is. What category do we put him in? How do we understand him? And, uh, and, they, and, and at this point, by the time Nicodemus comes to Jesus, they acknowledged he was a teacher and come from God and a miracle worker. And one of the reasons it's important to recognize this is that later when the Pharisees, for the most part, except for just less than a handful of exceptions, Nicodemus being one of them, when they become uh, great enemies and opposers of of Jesus, uh, they did so against great light. Uh, when, their, when their, pos- their religious position was hung over their head, when their occupation, their money, their income uh, was kind of hung over their head, they felt threatened by uh, Jesus, then they chose uh, to hold on to those things and to go after him despite what they recognized about him early on and as a result, very, very uh, uh, responsible for Uh, their decision to uh, do that. Jesus then responds and said to him most assuredly, when I'm in John chapter 3, I want to reinsert the verily verilies of my old King James Bible that they didn't have a new King James back when I got saved. And so I, I like it. Most assuredly, it does the job. But verily, verily, Jesus said, I say to you, as he addresses Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he talks now about this thing called being born again. Now, when you listen to what Nicodemus is doing here, Nicodemus is talking about uh, uh, speaking very highly of Jesus and the assessment of Jesus. And then Jesus does like a hard 90 out of it. It's like he hasn't even listened to a word that Nicodemus has said uh, to him. He doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, uh, He acknowledges it in his own way, but he doesn't acknowledge it uh, outwardly. 
He just turns the, the conversation and the subject immediately to being born again as a necessity uh, to seeing uh, uh, the, the kingdom uh, of God. And so I think that uh, the Bible says that concerning God, He sees our thoughts afar off. He sees our thoughts before, be, He understands our thoughts before we even think them. So I'm inclined to believe that Jesus knew exactly what Nicodemus was coming to talk to him about. And that what Nicodemus was coming to talk to Jesus about was what so many came to Jesus to talk about, and that is, what is the way to heaven? What is necessary that I can have the confidence uh, of life after death and that life being in, in heaven itself? And so I'm inclined to believe that Jesus heads right there to what he knew Nicodemus came for and tells him that unless one is born again, he cannot see um, the, the kingdom uh, of God. And so he, what's required in order to see the kingdom of God, Jesus talks about in verse 3, and then to enter into the kingdom of God uh, is being born again. It requires a spiritual uh, birth it requires being born uh, again now uh, some uh, bible students contend that this verse would be translated better uh, unless one is born from above as opposed to uh, born again and so born from above meaning being uh, born uh, by god and uh, and a spiritual birth that comes uh, from God, a spiritual birth that only God can accomplish, and certainly it, it, it means that. But I think born again uh, more closely represents what it is that Jesus is talking about here, that that's the exact terminology that, that he used because clearly it's how Nicodemus understood what he was saying as revealed in his response in verse 4 when he tries to think about being born again physically a second time. So Jesus is talking about the necessity of a spiritual birth. Now, and the necessity of it in order to see heaven, in, in order to uh, enter into heaven. Now one of the things that's happened to born again uh, today uh, in our modern culture is that uh, uh, there's a lot of people that don't like Christians, period. And then if there's one category of Christian that they really don't like is those born-againers. And the idea is that those people are really serious about their Christianity, and, um, and, and they have a zeal for God, they believe in the Bible, and they live their, lives that, their life based upon uh, the, the Bible. And so they're this kind of, uh, you know, I can, get, I can be around most Christians, but those born-againers, as if being a born-again Christian is a category within Christianity. It's nothing of the sort. You can't be a Christian without being born-again. There are no two categories. The only way a person can be a Christian is to experience this, uh, this spiritual uh, uh, birth. It's the very thing that makes us a Christian. I think also this understanding of being a born-again Christian, so often by the world, and, but we can misunderstand it uh, as well is that this idea that a born-again Christian is a, an extremely 
uh, zealous kind uh, category of Christian. And when they think of zeal, they think of a Christian Pharisee. And that's what happens so often in their minds. That Christianity turns a human being into a Pharisee. And yet Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and says to him, you need to be saved, born again, and saved out of who you are and what your religion and and interpretation of God's Word has made you into as much as the harlots and the prostitutes and the drunkards. Jesus is not interested in somebody being born again to now become anything that resembles what the Pharisees were. We're born again to become uh, like, uh, like Christ, to be conformed into His image. Now all of this is very confusing to Nicodemus. And I love Nicodemus. He ends up born again, by the way. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing him in heaven. But this is very confusing for him. And he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb uh, and be uh, born? And so uh, he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And he's not, uh, he's uh, brave enough. He is um, hungry for truth enough that he's willing to ask questions and not pretend that he knew what uh, Jesus was talking about when he talked about being uh, born uh, again. And so he, he came to learn and he, he's going uh, to learn. Some people view this as uh, sarcasm on Nicodemus' part. How can you say a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? That doesn't fit with the passage at all. It doesn't fit at all with the esteem which Nicodemus holds uh, Jesus in when he comes to see him. He is genuinely confused about what Jesus is talking uh, about here. He can only think about birth in in the physical realm. He doesn't understand that this is a spiritual birth that Jesus is talking about. So in his mind, he knew he'd been born once physically. How to be born physically a second time, his mind is going through some gymnastics here to try and, and figure that uh, out. But to his credit, he spoke up and he, he asked these questions. And so, because he has misunderstood here, Jesus then answers him, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. When it talks about being born of water, water is the fluid of physical birth. And, and sometimes people will look and say, well, born of water in the Spirit, it's talking about water baptism and, and, and the Spirit. Nothing, really nothing of the sort. Because as Jesus goes do- down here a little bit further, it's clear he's talking about a physical birth and a spiritual uh, birth. And so that's, that's, what, that's what's going on here. And so unless you're born of water and the Spirit, have a, a physical birth and a spiritual uh, birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Not only can he not see it, but he cannot enter uh, into the kingdom of uh, God. That which is born of the flesh, talking about a physical birth, that's flesh. 
That's something else Jesus says. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. These are two entirely different things. You've been born again, born once physically, and now you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit, uh, by having Him come into your life. And He said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, remember again who He's talking to here. He is talking to one of the most respected religious leaders and teachers in all of the land of Israel, and he tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And it tells us that being good or being religious is not enough to see heaven or to get into uh, heaven, that it requires a a spiritual uh, birth. And so he says, do not marvel that I say to you, you, and that you there is plural now, you must be born again. Now he's talking about in in verse 5 when he said, verily, verily, I say to you, speaking to Nicodemus, that is in the singular, he's speaking to him. And then down below, you must be born again. Now he pulls in not only Nicodemus, but all of the Pharisees and all of mankind must be born again to see heaven and to enter into heaven. I remember listening to a a Bible teacher uh, one time and trying to kind of uh, poo-poo the idea of uh, the necessity of being uh, uh, born again. And he said, you know, the only place in the whole Bible that Jesus talked to about being born again, the only person he talked to about being born again was Nicodemus. And what, what that person will perhaps learn is that he's talking to Nicodemus, singular in verse 5, but he expands it in verse 7. He's talking to the entire world. Everyone needs to be uh, uh, born again. And so that when he says you must be born again, that word must really sticks with, uh, with, uh, with Nicodemus. And, uh, and he comes uh, back to that in, in just a moment. Now, we read about, today we read this, and this is a passage that's familiar to us, and um, there may not be that many good things we can say about this church, but we can say that we try to teach the Bible, so we can learn the Bible. So most of us in this room are very, very familiar with uh, John chapter 3. I mean, we've studied it all of our life, we've heard sermons through it all, all of our life, but the latest statistics that I could, uh, could get from a reputable uh, polling company, uh, 2020, so pretty recent as far as polling goes, 53% of Americans who identify themselves as Christians believe that you get to heaven on the basis of good works. It's as if John chapter 3 isn't even in the Bible for over half of the people that consider themselves to be Christians. 
They think it's like everything else in the world, that we can work our way there and there's no need for a spiritual birth, despite the facts that Jesus uh, says there in verse 7, you must be born uh, again. And it's a, a, this spiritual birth that needs to occur. Now, when it, 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 Jesus then illustrates uh, kind of the mystery, though, of the spiritual birth uh, there in verse 8, he said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes and from, uh, where it comes from and where it goes, and so is everyone uh, born of the Spirit. And so Jesus goes on to declare that the spiritual birth is different from a physical one and that you can't see it happen with your eyes, uh, but it's as real as any physical birth uh, uh, could be. And he likens it to the uh, wind blowing through the trees. And, and I, I uh, don't doubt at all the way that Jesus would teach that Nicodemus and Jesus are outside somewhere uh, and uh, the wind blows through a tree and he immediately brings it uh, into the lesson that he's teaching uh, Nicodemus here related to the spiritual birth. When the wind blows, none of us can tell until it hits that tree. None of us can tell where, where it, what its origin is and we can't uh, see the wind. And yet we believe the wind to be a reality because uh, we can see and feel its effect. So you can't see the wind that, that blows through a tree. You don't know where it's come from. You don't know where it's going to go afterwards. So how do you know that it exists? How do you know that the wind is real? By the sounds it makes as it blows through the trees and then the effect that it has upon the tree. And in the same way, when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit. We pray for people all the time to become Christians. I don't know how many people you've prayed and led uh, to, to the Lord, but when you uh, did, you never saw the Holy Spirit enter into their life uh, with your own eyes. And so how do we know the spiritual birth has taken place? By the impact now, the effect of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, upon that life, upon coming into that life. That life changes. There is an effect that a spiritual birth, being born again by the Spirit, has upon a human life. And I would contend, and I say it somewhat regularly, that it is impossible for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for there not to be change. I don't define what that change will be or the magnitude of it or any of that. That's God's business. But change will occur as a result of a, a spiritual uh, birth. I have an old friend. He led my wife, uh, Karen, to the Lord over the phone when we were uh, brand new and seeking the Lord. So he's beloved by me for the rest of my life and eternity. And, uh, and I just had lunch with him this last week. And... and um, and he used, he used to describe himself as the biggest cusser this side of the Mississippi. And I believe it about him. He was in the Navy and he was in the submarines and all of that. And I'm not stereotyping uh, people in the Navy. But it's probably pretty rough. Just like in the Marines or 
in, in the infantry or wherever uh, it might, might be. You put uh, unsaved men in a can and put them down under the sea and, and uh, uh, it, it probably gets pretty, pretty lively. And yet, if you were to know this man today, I mean, you could, you could hardly believe that anything other than something that blesses God and blesses the hearer could ever come out of his mouth. But I believe that he once was that. And it's the Holy Spirit that came in and changed his life. And we all recognize that. It's one of the witnesses to the fact that we've born, been born again, uh, just as Jesus said, as an evidence of it, is that we are not remotely the person that we used to be or the person that we would have been apart from being born again. It is an evidence of, uh, of the, 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 the reality of the spiritual birth in our lives and, and the effect that that birth has as fully as any uh, uh, physical birth has uh, upon uh, a, a life. As the Holy Spirit comes into our life, gives us the will to do, the power to do of, of God's good pleasure. Well, again, as I said in verse 7, when Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus definitely took notice of that must, that even he had to be born again. And so he answered and he said to Jesus, how can these things uh, be? So he understands what Jesus is talking about now. He understands the necessity of a spiritual birth. He understands what it is. But now he wants to know uh, how this can happen in a person's life. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher, the teacher, talking about how highly esteemed he was as a teacher in Israel at the time, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And so Jesus uh, gently rebukes him. As a, uh, in his role as a Pharisee, gently rebukes him for how in the world he could miss all of the passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the fact that a day would come in human history tied to the Messiah uh, when the laws would no longer merely be written upon tablets but be written upon the fleshly tablets of man's heart by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ezekiel uh, wrote about it. Jeremiah uh, wrote uh, about it. And then he goes on, Jesus does, to rebuke um, uh, Nicodemus and to rebuke the Pharisees for refusing to take seriously what it was that Jesus was teaching uh, in his ministry. He said, Verily, verily, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Talking about Jesus saying, the Father and I, I teach what the Father tells me to teach here, uh, the miracles uh, that, that we do. And, and you've come in and you said, nobody can do what you've done except that they're from God. Then why if, why if you accept the miracles, why won't you accept the truth that the miracles are given to validate. And so, uh, why won't you believe what it is that the Father and I are telling you? If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So he says to Nicodemus, what I am telling you about, the things that I'm teaching you here about a spiritual birth and and beyond that the Pharisees had heard him teach, These are not truths you can know by being a man on planet earth and trying to reach up into heaven from that direction and learn these things. These things are only learned by listening to the one who has once inhabited heaven and has now come to you and then declares these things on behalf of himself and, uh, and the Father. So he's showing that, speaking to him of the superiority uh, of, of his revelation and confronting them really with, uh, with their uh, un- unbelief. We'll just jump down a a couple of verses to verse 16, most famous verse in the Bible, getting right to what Nicodemus asked. How can these things be? How, how, how am I, is one born again? And Jesus said, for God so loved the world, this salvation is birthed out of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave, this salvation is received as a gift, He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever believes or trusts in Him for salvation should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're born again by simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And uh, and, and for that, the confidence that that faith will provide us with that forgiveness. It will give us the confidence of heaven after this life and, and begin us in a relationship with God that will go on forever and ever. And it doesn't happen on the basis of works. It, it, it is only by relying or trusting or believing in uh, Jesus. So that if, if someone were to come up to us and ask, what are you basing the forgiveness of your sins and, and, the, and everlasting life and the confidence of heaven uh, upon? And our answer w- would be the fact that I have put my trust in Jesus, in His death and His burial and in His resurrection as God's promised Messiah, God's promised Savior for those things. And I rely entirely upon Jesus for those things uh, in my life, what He has done for me. And, and, and that is what it means to believe on Him or to trust in Him or to rely in, on Him for all uh, of, of these things. Again, do notice that salvation is a free gift from God to us. He gave. It can't be earned. Uh, we don't deserve it. We could never, ever deserve it. God has provided it to us as, as a gift. And this is important to understand <clears throat> because in the light of so many people that you will ask who even uh, speak of themselves as a Christian, you say, are you a Christian? And they'll respond, well, I'm trying to be. And that's a complete misunderstanding of what a Christian is and how a person becomes a Christian. We don't become a Christian by trying to be on anything. We become a Christian by trusting in Jesus Christ for that 
that salvation and that spiritual uh, birth. And of course, like any gift that is offered to us by anyone, it does us no good at all until we personally receive that gift. And so here's the assumption that a person will receive it to make it uh, their own. God has made salvation so simple. It's just a matter of, of uh, 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 this is what God wants us to know His provision, His good news of salvation. And uh, all we need to do is to just simply receive it. And people balk at the simplicity uh, of that, but it's designed to be very, uh, um, very, very simple. Uh, a lot of us, it would be like, okay, um, it's, a, it, it's, um, it's based upon faith and give me 50 push-ups. Or some kind, somehow we think if some, it, some, even the smallest thing that we could add to it would make it more sure and secure than it is. And, and we would mar it. But it's, it's simple, it's made as easy as receiving a gift uh, by design uh, uh, from God. And you notice that God loves the world. And so he's provided the world with this salvation that's found in Jesus. But you notice too that every uh, whosoever, as is here, must believe in order to receive the gift and, and in order not to perish but have everlasting life. So we see very, very clear in this passage that there is personal choice and responsibility, personal responsibility involved in our salvation. The Bible talks about our salvation. The Bible talks about it as a, a, in our lives as being a product of God's predestination or God's election and also being a part of our free moral agency, our freedom to accept or receive God's uh, gift of, uh, of salvation. And so, uh, yes, it, 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 God in His foreknowledge, His knowledge of who would, would or would not receive His Savior to receive Jesus' as salvation, knowing that before the foundation of the creation of the world, He predestined those who He knew uh, would receive uh, salvation. But that does not in any way negate the responsibility every single person has uh, to turn to Jesus personally uh, and trust in Him for salvation. Somebody might wonder, how do I know God has predestined me to be saved? How do I know uh, that if He knows that uh, I will trust in Jesus in order to then be predestined to salvation? And the answer is, put your faith in Jesus Christ and be born again, and then you'll know you were predestined. It's really just as, as simple as, as that. But both God's election and human responsibility are involved in every person's salvation. And it is important to accept those two elements of salvation as, as irreconcilable or as mysterious as those things uh, may be in the Scriptures. Now, Reformed theology, which uh, emphasizes God's election and predestination and salvation, to such a degree that they teach that man has no choice in the matter uh, at all, but that it's all about God's uh, election. And uh, one of the problems, uh, uh, they run into a, a great problem in this, what is the most famous verse uh, on salvation in the, in the entire Bible, 
here spoken by Jesus to an individual named Nicodemus and to the entire world as a result on the very subject of salvation. Jesus speaks of God's love for the whole world, which means that it cannot mean anything other than out of God's love, He wants the whole world to be saved. He wants the entire world to be saved. As Peter would later write, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And you notice additionally that he talks about the whosoever. Jesus declared that whosoever can believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And whosoever means whosoever. It means all. It means every. It means anyone. And that is exactly what uh, Jesus intended to communicate and did communicate concerning salvation. Reformed theology reinterprets the world and the whosoever in John 3.16 away from that and declares that those two words refer not to the whole world and not to whosoever, but only to the elect. Once you have to fiddle with John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible on salvation, in order to protect your theological position, You can count me out. I have no interest in uh, entering into that kind uh, of a game. I have no interest in playing, fiddling around with any verse in the Bible, but certainly uh, not to wrest it uh, away and have it say the exact opposite of what it does say. uh, And and that is a, a frightening thing to do to the passage. Now, having said that, Let me also be careful to add that I think that both biblical truths, uh, God's election and man's free moral agency in getting to accept or to reject God's offer of salvation and then to be held responsible before God uh, for that that decision, uh, each of those things brings something very important to the table concerning our salvation, even with our our limited understanding. In general, I think the passages which emphasize man's responsibility, man's free will concerning his salvation should be directed at the unsaved. While the passages that speak to election and predestination uh, and emphasize that should be supremely directed toward the saved. You notice that when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus here concerning his salvation in John 3.16. In John chapter 3, you have the purest scene of evangelism on the part of Jesus in all of the Bible. And when he talks to Nicodemus, his entire conversation is loaded to Nicodemus' responsibility to decide to accept this gift of salvation. He loads it entirely on human responsibility. He never brings up election. He never brings up predestination. It is nowhere to be found uh, in the account uh, at all. And I think it's very wise to follow uh, his example in that. But I also think that once a person becomes saved... Once we become saved, now we face all of the problems that everyone else faces in life, 
all of the difficulties, all the same trials, and then a whole new set of trials and difficulties, spiritual uh, warfare, opposition that comes into our life as a result of, uh, of, of being born again. We battle with the, the old flesh on a daily basis and, and the persecution that comes uh, into our life. And God knows that having become born again, we are desperately in need of the strongest assurance possible of our salvation in the face of these oppositions. And so He lets us know that our salvation is as sure as His Word, as sure as His ability to choose and to keep. And what election and predestination is intended to produce within us as Christians is just this strongest, strongest sense of the security of our uh, salvation. And uh, that is a, a large part of, of what it is that uh, these doctrines are intended to uh, produce. I've always appreciated the perspective. It's an old illustration, but it's very hard uh, to top. The illustration of this great door that you would walk through that would represent uh, our salvation. And as you pass through the door, uh, 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 start to approach the door carved above uh, the, the door frame, whosoever will may come. And then as you pass through the door and look back, you see chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it's fascinating to look at these subjects in the light of Nicodemus, Jesus speaking here to Nicodemus in, in this, this situation and how much personal responsibility is uh, right on the surface and, and uh, deeply represented here as well. Now, in verse 14 and verse 15, which I skip but I'll come back to, Jesus now illustrates the spiritual birth and how it happens in a way in order to make it uh, simpler for, uh, simple for us to understand. So Jesus is this masterful teacher. He, he, uh, he, he draws the wind and the trees into his teaching, uh, and then he quotes something now from uh, the Old Testament, and he declares, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of the cross, and that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting uh, life. And so Jesus illustrated uh, the power of faith related to salvation in this incident uh, uh, concerning the bronze serpent in Israel's history from Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel, as was their custom quite frequently, they were complaining about their situation and complaining to Moses, why would you bring us out here into this wilderness? There's no food and there's no water and all of this kind of thing. And uh, so what God did is, is He uh, uh, released serpents or allowed a venomous snake to be released among the camp and as a judgment for their whining and their complaining um, the, the, the snakes began to bite people and to be bitten by the snake was, was to die and so God spoke to the people came back they repented they said you know go, 
cry out to God for us. What are we supposed to do? We've been bitten by a snake and we're going to die. Can He provide us with a salvation? And God said, take a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, put it in the middle of the camp, and when a person is bitten by that snake and then they look in faith to that bronze serpent, uh, then they won't, uh, they won't die. And those who looked at the bronze serpent when they were bitten, they didn't die. And those who refused to, uh, they did die. And so here they are, they're being judged uh, for their sin as a result of, of the serpent bites. Their condition uh, was terminal. God in His grace provided them with uh, a way of salvation. All anyone needed to do was just obey God's commandment to just look at the serpent uh, in faith and they would be healed. Every person who did so uh, uh, ended up being healed. And so why in the world did looking in faith to God's provision for their salvation, why did it work on this physical level? And it worked for one simple reason. It was God's way. It was His way of salvation. It was the means of salvation that He chose. Why that serpent on that staff and the look of faith was powerful in people's life and saving their lives was because that's the way that God chose to save them. That's the power uh, 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 in it. And the the salvation through faith in Christ, it works. It is effectual, as they say, and it is effectual, effective, because it is God's way of saving uh, mankind. And so in the same way as we're physically, they were physically saved by looking upon the bronze serpent in the wilderness in obedience to God's plan of salvation, we are saved spiritually by looking in faith to Jesus, His death upon the cross for our sins. And of course, the imagery, the parallels are tremendous as Jesus brings all of this up because uh, who better to represent uh, the, the great curse in all of this, uh, or what better would be a snake? As, as Satan came to Eve as, as a serpent in, in the garden, and, uh, and here is the bite that occurred in the Garden of Eden that is far greater in terms of consequences than, than a physical death by virtue of a, a physical uh, bite of a physical snake. Uh, here is a spiritual death uh, uh, that, uh, that occurred from uh, the, uh, Satan uh, biting, so to speak, mankind through Adam and Eve. And so our salvation is powerful because it is His way. I've been a Christian a lot of years. Less than some of you, more than some of you. And, and I have taken the study of His Word very seriously. I mean, I just enjoy it. I just love it. The Word of God, I, when I first got exposed to the Word of God, I couldn't believe what was in it. I just couldn't. I wanted the whole world to know what, what I was learning every single uh, day. And the salvation that God has provided to us, we will spend all of our lives uh, exploring and, and coming to 
um, uh, appreciate its depth, its, the complexity of it, the intricacy of it, the perfection, did I just say that? The perfection of it, a perfect match uh, for us. And so it is a marvel in terms of the provision to us, but receiving it is as simple as receiving a gift at Christmas time or on a person's uh, uh, birthday. He has made it as simple uh, as possible. And again, in this illustration that Jesus brings up in terms of the serpent up on the staff, what is the entire focus of that illustration? Election? Predestination? It isn't. He emphasizes, once again, personal responsibility related to our own uh, uh, our own salvation. Those who look to Christ for salvation, they live. Those who refuse to, they die. But not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. Jesus then closes his conversation here in verse 17 with a, uh, a, a warning against rejecting this salvation. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I remember some of you, maybe just probably a couple of you, uh, remain from the very early days of the church starting when we were at Sherwood Bible Church. And, um, and uh, we were, had afternoon services. Spurgeon said, don't have afternoon services if you can. People are full of beef and unbelief. And, uh, and, and we started the church when the 49ers had the home field advantage and won the Super Bowl that year. And, uh, uh, and, and our services were up against the Niners. It was a test of people's spirituality. And so there was Karen and I and, uh, and our two kids and Dave Abbey uh, coming to the church. But I remember I, 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 mentioned, I, I had quoted this during a sermon, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And, and as I said that, my eye just kind of went over to a guy that's kind of sitting in the, this place within Sherwood Bible Church, and he had his arms folded like that, and he's, he's just nodding uh, like this. And um, uh, turns out he was just, you know, a very, very wicked human being. And, and he liked that uh, portion uh, of, of the passage. God, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But what I went on to say for him to hear, and what, what Jesus goes on and, and says here is, the reason he didn't come into con- the world to condemn the world is, we are already condemned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He doesn't need to do any more condemning. We have already spoiled and ruined ourselves for heaven. What we need is a Savior. And, and that is what He has come into the world uh, uh, to, uh, to do. And he who believes in Him uh, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son uh, of God. Everything hinges upon my faith or lack of faith in Christ. And this is the condemnation that the light, speaking of Jesus, has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That is a very, very fascinating Two verses, verses 19 and 20. And what Jesus communicates is, is that when people refuse the light, when they refuse Jesus, they refuse 
um, his teaching, they do so because they are protecting some area of darkness in their life. It is never intellectual. It is never all of the different kinds of excuses that people uh, give forth. Jesus says, one day when it is all revealed, what is going to be revealed is all rejection was in order to protect some kind of darkness that I wanted to continue to participate in and that turning to Jesus would uh, require me to repent of. And it's good to know that. Uh, occasionally, when I, when I, and I try to be led by the Spirit as I share the gospel with people, but when people say no and this and that or whatever kind of a deal and all, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with lovingly saying, what is it in your life that you would have to give up in order to become a follower of Jesus that you don't want to give up? And you'll be very, very close to the reason that they are rejecting Christ. It's never quite what it appears to be. Through the years, and God help us all to finish well in our service to the Lord, but through the years there have been different uh, pastors that have fallen in lots of different ways, and then uh, some of them will uh, have become very, very prominent and then they'll become uh, liberal, so to speak, in their theology. They will decide, I don't think that this is a sin anymore, and I don't think that this is a sin uh, anymore. And it's always discouraging, because in my mind, you know, we need all the pastors we can get that are faithfully teaching uh, the Word of God. And it, it always breaks my heart, and then I, I, I think to myself, it never budges me, though, never moves me. Be, it, it might have early on, but it doesn't any longer. And I just think, wait it out. Wait it out. And how often months later or years later, we find out they massage their doctrine, change their view on the doctrine, because there was a sin in their life, a piece of darkness, that they no longer wanted to deny themselves. And so rather repent of the sin they took and twisted uh, the Scriptures to try and accommodate it. Nothing is what it appears to be outwardly in these kind of conversations. Jesus said, this is the bottom line, but we don't just look at who it is that, uh, that rejects. We notice in verse 21, and we have to keep our eyes on those that do accept the Lord, for he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds might be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he uh, remained with them and he baptized. John the, Bapt uh, Pap John the Baptist was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, people coming to John still to be water baptized, for John had not yet been thrown uh, into prison. Uh, by Herod. And then uh, there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John, the, the religious leaders, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you have testified is the Messiah, behold, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And they're, and they're trying to put a rift between John the Baptist and Jesus. 
uh, 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 you know, to, to provoke some jealousy or, or something like this. Uh, that would have worked in their religious system. John the Baptist, he had no problem with Jesus becoming more popular than him at all. Uh, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him uh, from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, uh, but I have been sent before him. I never told you I was the Messiah. I told you he was the Messiah. And I've just been sent into the world here called uh, to point people to him as the Messiah. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend, and that's speaking of Jesus, but the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, who stands and hears uh, the bridegroom, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And so the picture is a picture of a wedding. We're all familiar with, with this. I have never officiated a wedding yet or attended one yet where the best man leaves with the bride. And I hope I never see it. The bridegroom leaves with the bride and the best man is thrilled to have it so. So John says, listen, you're trying to make me upset because the bride is flocking to the bridegroom? I'm, I'm more delighted than I can put into words. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes uh, from above is above all. He who is on the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So he's going to give them a quick primer on who Jesus is. He's come from heaven. He's come from above. And you don't receive his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom uh, God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit uh, by measure. God gave the Holy Spirit by measure to the prophets in, in, and uh, uh, in the Old Testament, but when He anointed Jesus in His incarnation, there was no measure uh, placed upon it at all. The world has not seen. Uh, you could put all of the Old Testament prophets together, and the world, uh, all of them together, the world has not seen anyone uh, like Jesus in terms of the Spirit upon His life. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son does not, uh, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Him. That is, it continues. That's the problem. That's what salvation is intended to do in our life, is to lift off the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God, that, it, it, that is on my sin. And the only way that righteous wrath, the only way he can be just and the justifier of sinful man uh, in, in lifting that wrath that my sin deserves for eternity is through Jesus Christ. And so we'll stop here, obviously, and pick things up, God willing, 
in chapter 4 next week. If you are not born again, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we'll be up in front immediately after the service and we'd love to pray with you to do exactly that. If you have any need in your life uh, this evening that you would like someone just to listen uh, to it and, and to pray with you this evening, we'd love to do that as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this majestic, majestic chapter we've been able to study here this evening and the clarity of it and clarity on the most important subject of all for all of us. We thank you for Nicodemus. We thank you for his willingness to put aside his religious pride and his religious accomplishments and, and all of those things to come and see in you, Jesus, what he could see nowhere else. And find out what is the source, where does this come from. And then for you in that conversation to supply all of us with this priceless revelation. Thank you. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for the spiritual birth. Thank you, Father, that when your Holy Spirit comes into our life, we do not remain the same. Thank you for the changes that you have made in our life, continue to make those changes. We look forward to the day when we will be perfectly conformed into the image of your Son. But we sure like the direction that we're moving in, Lord, and in the confidence of what is yet ahead for us. All because of you, your grace and your love, we are humbled and we are thankful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.